You may be seated. Going through the book of the Gospel of John, we're in the 16th chapter. We'll pick up at verse 16 this morning. Please continue to keep Joanne and Rick in your prayers. I want to thank you for everyone who's been uh, taking meals over, just praying the most important thing for them. So let's continue to do those things. And as we're going through the book of John, remember in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus, he's been speaking to his disciples. And we have to understand that this is the final night before his crucifixion. John is the only gospel who tells what's happening in the background in this final night. So he begins to speak in chapter 16 about how to interpret persecution that the believer will have to confront in this world. And he begins to speak about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world and being in the believer so that we can know what the Holy Spirit is doing and so that we can fall in line with the marching orders of the Holy Spirit because there's still a work to be done here. And in between the time of Christ's departure and the time of his return for the church, the bride of Christ, he says in verse 16 of chapter 16, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me because I go to the Father. So he's speaking once again about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He says, a little while and you will not see me. He's going to die on the cross and be buried. But that wasn't going to be the end of the story, praise God, because God is steering this ship. And so he says, and again, a little while and you will see me speaking of after his resurrection and his brief 40 day period as he is here on earth. And then he will ascend up into heaven and he will give that baton baton once again to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will come inside every believer. So he says in verse 17, then some of his disciples said among themselves. Now, remember, whether Jesus is still in the upper room or he's gone through the temple precinct about to cross over the Kidron uh, Valley there. But he's right in their presence. And we're going to find out they don't understand what he's speaking of right now. And so they get together in sort of an unholy huddle. And the reason I call it an unholy huddle, every time we get together and begin to discuss the things of Christ, if Christ is not there, we're in trouble. Especially when he's right in front of us and we have questions about what the word says or what he is speaking to us, and we still don't go and ask him. They say, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. See, they weren't tracking with what he was saying at this point. Jesus says, they said, therefore, what is this? that he says a little while we do not know 
what he's saying. What's the solution when we don't understand what Jesus is saying? We just go ask him, Jesus, do you have a remedial course that I can take? Or Jesus, can you condescend a little so I can understand what you are saying to me? And you know, he's glad to do it. If he could humble himself and become a man, how much more if we have any kind of questions of what's going on in our lives, if we ask him, he will make it clear for us because he's very patient with us. He says, now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So he he explains it to them. He says, most assuredly, amen, amen. You can take this to the bank. I say to you that you will weep and lament. And what he's talking about, he's speaking of the cross. They will be scattered in all directions this night. And the cross was heartbreaking to the disciples. And once again, they were not getting what he was speaking of as it relates to what was going to happen to him. His crucifixion, it wasn't going to be the final word in all of this, but the resurrection was going to happen And then his ascension to heaven. So Jesus is saying, it's coming. I'm going to be on the cross and I'm letting you guys understand this and you will be heartbroken over it. But everybody else, it says the world will rejoice. They're finally rid of me, they're thinking. He says, and you will be sorrowful, sorrowful As the word says, full of sorrow. He says, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. You will have the last laugh. And so Jesus, he illustrates from life how quickly sorrow can be turned into joy. He says in verse 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, the hour to give birth to that baby, the pain that's involved, the exhaustion, all of that is coming to a head. He says, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus is saying that's what happens in childbirth when it's happening, all you think about, all you are are aware of is when is this baby coming? I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I never want to have another child again, I've heard some women say. But as soon as that little baby is given to that mom in her arms, all of that dissipates until it was worth it. And I might even decide to have another child. That's how it goes there. Jesus' illustration is very important because he's speaking not only of the crucifixion that he's saying they're going to be sorrowful about. But in that crucifixion, there will be a resurrection. You're going to be bummed out. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be sorrowful. But that sorrow will turn into joy. The labor pains 
are worth it because of the life that is being brought into the world. And Jesus is saying, the pain that you guys are about to experience, the sorrow that you're about to experience is going to be worth it when you see me resurrect from the tomb again. Salvation will be birthed into the world. Uh, A living, powerful hope will be birthed into the world. None of this could ever happen, would ever happen, apart from the resurrection. The Godhead knows this. So he says in verse 22, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. That word uh, joy is kara. It means gladness, calm, delight, no matter what is happening. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he puts it this way. Whom having not seen, you love. The King James says you love. In whom, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what the believer has in Christ Jesus, no matter what is going on in our life. We'll look at that. That's what it is for us. That's what is in store for us. But it's also that joy and that charis. We have to obtain that. And we're going to see that a little later. He says in verse 23, and in that day, you will ask me nothing. You will request or you will directly speak to me for nothing following his ascension into heaven. They would no longer have the physical access of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is saying, but I've made a way for you so that you can still speak to me through the Father. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Jesus is saying things are about to change here. There will be a new relationship with God after I ascend to heaven. Because you have to understand, they were used to hanging out with Jesus 24-7, walking with him. If they had any kind of need, all they would do would go to Jesus and ask him. And Jesus is saying, this is about to change because I'm about to ascend unto the Father. And now you have to ask the Father of your need in my name. And what he's doing by that, when you acknowledge that you're coming to the Father by my name, Jesus Christ, I'm the one who has provided access for you to the Father. As we were having the, our men's breakfast yesterday, and it just struck me because as I was looking at this passage, when Pastor Jonathan prayed, he says, Father, I come to you, and that's fine. That's what Jesus has made a way for. I've heard people pray. Uh, usually my prayers, I come to you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. But I, the one is fine. Whether you speak to the Father directly, and and the reason it's directly is because Jesus, of his crucifixion and his resurrection, he has given us access, or in his name, and mostly in his name, Yahweh, that's who he is also, but my request and my petitions 
if they are to be heard and if they are to be answered, must go into the heart of Christ. I must have his heart when I'm requesting things. Once again, uh, Jesus is not going to request a Bentley for me. I would request it, but that's not going to be answered. I don't need that. I'll continue to drive my F-150, 19, what is it, 90 truck. My point is, but the things that are important and I'm in line with Jesus Christ's heart, I'm going to the Father in his name. And his ears perk up because he hears those prayers because that's his heart. And that, that's modeled all the way through Scripture. It's only two times when people pray straight to the Father. And the, the, the one that I'm thinking of now is when Stephen is being stoned. I wish I could think of the second one. When Stephen is being stoned, he speaks directly to Jesus Christ. But usually, it's in the name of Jesus to the Father. You will never find in Scripture anyone praying through the Holy Spirit to the Father or the Son. I'll have to ask them about that one day, but that's not found in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit, he's usually the background guy. His power, his might, he's God just as the Son and the Father, but he plays the background very well. In verse 24, it tells us, Jesus says, until now, you have asked nothing in my name because I was there. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I hope you see that because Jesus is saying the way your joy is full is when you're speaking to me in Jesus' name and his character and his heart as I'm pouring that out to the Father. There's joy there. He says your joy may be full. Then he says these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, in metaphors or allegories. Speaking of, he, he, he spoke of the true vine, which was an allegory, a metaphor. He's spoken of a little while, and he speaks of this childbirth analogy. He says, things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father." It seems to me when Jesus says, I will tell you plainly about the Father, I could understand him saying that, speaking in metaphors and allegories, when Judas Iscariot was in the upper room. But if you recall with me, this might clear it up. Jesus, when he first touched down, spoke plainly, spoke plainly to the crowds And then when the religious leaders came, he turned back and he says, I will no longer speak plainly. I will speak in what? In parables. Those who think they see, they don't see. Those who think they hear will not hear. He says, this is why I do this. So my point is, those who wanted to hear and understand what he was saying most of the times, most, especially the disciples, they would go back and they would ask him. He, what he was saying, I'm just not going to uh, force feed you guys. This is God himself. He could speak and everyone could bow their knee and repent of their sins. But that wouldn't be your free choice, your free will. So he says, I'm going to speak to you in parables. I'm going to throw these seeds out. 
And if it falls on good soil, it will make you begin to think about spiritual things. And then you'll take that step forward to understanding these things. But he was regretting that he had to do that. Not only that Judas was in the upper room, he's just left. But are you hungry? How hungry are you for the word of God? Is it number one on your priority list? Or do I do my 30 minutes reading in the morning and then I'm clear for the day? I've did it. I'm, I'm, I'm over with it. That's all I need is a, a teaspoon of the word. I can't find that in the scriptures anyway. Maybe you guys can help me out. Uh, because my Bible tells me I should meditate on this thing day and night. And he says that, the Holy Spirit says that for a reason, because it's important. And the more I'm in the word and the more I'm in prayer and the more I'm delving in those things, in spiritual things, the more I will look and act like Jesus Christ. I'm amazed that I can sit in front of a football game for two, two, two hours, 45 minutes, and I find it hard to read my Bible for 30 minutes. That's what we wrestle with, this flesh. But it's important that we delve in the Word and allow the Word to wash us and cleanse us because tribulation is coming, he's saying here. Persecution is coming. And it doesn't have to be when you think of persecution, uh, the the government or someone is persecuting me, uh, hate speech because because I'm preaching the Bible, but just everyday living in this world. Trials, persecution. And if I'm not engrafted in the word and engrafted in the true vine and allowing him to speak to me and change me when I want to flare off and get frustrated, the Holy Spirit says, no, calm down. It's going to be all right. I could never reach that. I could never attain that without being in the word of God. Jesus says in verse 27, in that day you will ask Ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. Why? For the Father himself, understand this, loves you. Phileo, the Father is fond of you because you have loved me. You are fond of me and have believed that I came forth from God. So they had three and a half years of face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus knows their tendencies Jesus knows when they needed something, they would go to him. Things are about to change. And what Jesus is saying now, ask the Father in my name, and he will be glad to grant your prayer if it's in line with my heart. And, you know, we can have a tendency And I'll tell on myself a little here. It's like my two kids. If they wanted something, they'd usually go to their mom. And if that didn't work, then I was second fiddle. That's what Jesus is saying. We're one. Jesus is saying, go with that same heart. Go with that same attitude with the Father. I'm not... The father is not the bad guy. The father loves you just as much 
as I love you. So you don't have to be reticent. You don't have to be, oh, I don't know, should I go to the Father? He said, no. You go to the Father now because he loves you. The Father is not in a bad mood when you ask or request something. Jesus doesn't have to keep the Father in a steady, smooth way for you to ask him. He said, no, that's, it doesn't work like that. He says in verse 27, and I love it, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. And I hope you understand that this morning, that God the Father is not the Godfather. That God the Father is for you. That he loves you just as much as the Son loves you. The Father loves you. And Jesus is telling them, the reason the Father loves you so much is that you love me. And you have believed in the words that I have spoken to you. There's no greater joy for a dad than to see his children when they get married, if they get married, that the person they marry loves their children. If I know that woman loves my son or that man loves my daughter, that's the greatest joy I can have. I know they're going to be okay. That's what Jesus is saying. The Father loves you just as much as I love you. And the Father is not slightly disappointed in you. You don't have to speak kind and gentle words to him for him to love you. He loves you. And it's once again, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Where's the object of the father's love? And that once again, that object is his son because he loves his son. And you know what? It's easy to love the Godhead. They love us, but really the pleasure is all ours, that they would look on us to love us like that. He says in verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. I'm going back home. His disciples said to him, notice what they say, see now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. you. You thought they would have said that or meant that when they saw Jesus walking on water or when they saw him heal the lame and all those things. But they say, oh, we've got it all together. We understand everything now, Jesus. By this, we believe that you came forth from God. And what they're saying is, now we understand things perfectly, Jesus. But he's about to put them to the test. Jesus seems a little less convinced of how much they know or how clear they say, see things. Because he says in verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? That's the question. He says, I'm going to show you how much you believe. And the reason Jesus says, do you now believe? He knows they really don't believe now. Because let me tell you something. Let me hip you to something. Whatever you believe in, you will give obedience to. 
You can say, I believe all day, I believe this all day. But when the rubber meets the road, do you give obedience to what you believe? That's what he tells his boys right here. He says, do you now believe? No, you don't. This is why you don't. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come. At that moment, the torches are being lit. Judas Iscariot is with them, and they're on their way to Gethsemane. Jesus knows this, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. But then he says, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. This peace is not only the peace of Romans uh, 5 he speaks of here, but it's a subjective kind of peace as well. When chaos and your whole world seems to be falling apart inside of you, because I know Jesus Christ and whom I have believed in and whom I belong, there's tranquility. That's the way it should be. Even in a hostile world, we should have peace. We should experience that tranquility, that sereneness. But we have to also understand that this is conditional too. Like joy, peace may be available, but you know what we have to do? We have to choose it. When the storms of life come and they sit there for a while, we have to choose peace. Peace is there. I know if I'm a believer, I have peace with God. I'm no longer enemies, but he's given me the peace of God no matter what I've gone through. I heard someone said the other day, I might not be getting joy out of reading the word, but you know what I still do? I still read it. And Jesus Christ smiles at that. You're not running here. You're not running there. I believe, help my unbelief. That's discipline. But we have to choose joy. We have to choose peace. And you do those things. I'm telling you guys, if you take nothing else from me, take this. We don't walk by things that we see, but it's the things that are unseen. If we go by what we see, we will always ride that roller coaster. These are spiritual battles, and we must trust in the Lord that he is good. And he rewards those, my Bible tells me, that diligently seek him, that diligently seek after him. We, we, we can't do this wishy-washy thing. I'm, I'm going to ride with you as long as everything is going well. And as soon as things don't go well, hey, I, I need to try something else. No, we have to continue to follow the Lord because that's why Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He will tell us that. He says, in the world where we're living at, you will have tribulation. He says, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. When he says, these things I have spoken to you, what things? All of the things he's spoken of through chapters 
13 through chapter 16 that contains, it contains the servanthood of God. It speaks about the Holy Spirit and his function in the believer and also in the world. It speaks of the true vine and how to abide in the true vine. All of these things, loving one another. I give you a new commandment. He's speaking of all of these things. He says, I've told you all of these things that in me, you may have peace. Jesus, once again, he doesn't speak just to hear himself talk as some people do. When he speaks, he means what he says and it should fall on good soil. In this time of separation, he says, in the world, you will have tribulation, philipsit, tribulum, where that big piece of wood, and sometimes it would have rocks in it or stones in it or glass in it, and it would run across the grain and separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what the world does to every believer. Sooner or later, separating the wheat from the chaff. What is good I think it's Isaiah who says, separating the precious from the vile. (laughs) That's beautiful. Separating the precious from the vile. That's what tribulation does. If we just sit there under it and knowing that we serve a loving God, he's going to do that. He says, but be of good cheer or good courage, bearing up under those things. I have overcome the world. We're on the winning side, no matter what it looks like. Chapter 17, Jesus spoke these words. I don't think they're in the upper room right now. They may be outside going to the Kidron, but it says, Jesus spoke these these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. It's showtime. Glorify, check this oneness out. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. John Knox said that John 17 is the holies of holies in the temple of Scripture. I have to agree with him here. It's something special that's going on here. And it's also, this is the true Lord's prayer here, because when when the disciples said, Uh, Jesus teaches how to pray. He began to show them, but in that prayer, it speaks of forgiveness of sins. Jesus had no sin. And I'm amazed that the Holy Spirit would allow us to eavesdrop on this marvelous prayer. And we have to understand, this was every day the Son speaking to the Father. This is what he did all the time. He loved the Father. And and, and this is what it shows us here. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, I like the guttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus does. He is about to pray. And as he begins to pray, these five verses 
is about him. Lord, this is what I, I want you to do. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. And the context is the cross. How in the world could God the Father and God the Son be glorified in the cross? That's the question here. How could the cross bring them glory? It's only through the cross of Calvary that we are able to understand a semblance, just a little bit, of the magnitude that God has, his love that he has for us. Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, that mean God of the Old Testament, in that while we were still sinners, the King James says Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 8, 32 tells us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely without a cause give us all things? And the thing that glorifies God, the Father, more than anything, what brings him glory more than anything, is that he would be known for his love for sinful human beings. That's what brings him glory more than anything. That you love my only unique son so much that you would believe in him. Paul is blown away by this. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of sinful man. How in the world could God the Father be just and the justifier? And the key is without minimizing the seriousness of sin. How are you going to do that? You see, he just can't wink at sin, and he never does that. But I want to save them. How can that be done? So how can he save me and not lower the standard of holiness and his righteousness? That's the dilemma, because they must remain unblemished. And at the cross, it shows this. It shows at the cross that Jesus Christ God the Father and the Holy Spirit did not wink at sin. All you have to do if you believe that is look at the cross and who hung on it. And once again, Scripture tells us in a few hours, this man that they will be will not even look like a man. And yet he hangs on the cross for our sin. That's how much he loves us. It's amazing. I'm blown away by that. So he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life. Notice it says that he should give eternal life. It's given. It's a gift to as many as you have given him. That's predestination and man's responsibility. When you see the Father, you can ask him about that one. But it plainly states that from the foundation of the world, the Lord knows those that are his. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Please notice 
that word know. That word know is gnosko. And what it means, a knowledge that comes from experience. Salvation is not found in nearly knowing about the existence of God. It's not found that way. Or confessing that God exists. James tells us the demons believe there's a God and tremble. And there's not a single demon that's an agnostic or an atheist. But none of them will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying to know Jesus Christ is to be born again experientially. It's not head knowledge that God exists because remember in the third chapter of the book of John, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Had all the head knowledge you could ever want, but still wasn't a believer. So you have to know Jesus Christ experientially. There's a connection there. The spirit of God enters into me. I repent of my sins and I place all my trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where salvation is in Jesus Christ there. He says in verse four, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. Up to this point, he's committed everything to the cross. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I want you to feel the pathos in that, what he's saying. As Jesus is looking at the cross, he is longing to be clothed with with his eternal glory that he had from the foundations of the world. The culture Jesus Christ lived in was an honor and shame society. And they cared about honor. Uh, The Jewish society, the Jewish culture, they, they didn't care if you were poor or rich, but they cared about honor. And you can see that today even in the Muslim religion. If a Muslim girl, we say, marries a Christian guy and she converts to Christianity, there's those uh, mercy killings that the father or the parent or the brother will hunt the, the girl down and kill her. And it's because of honor that you became a believer in Jesus Christ because they lived in an honor and shame society. And all of the glory that Jesus Christ had in heaven, he gave up and came down here to die on the cross. It's amazing to me that he would do that, but he does that for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 tells us, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Has any of you guys ever been to heaven? I don't think so. The Holy Spirit says, those that are believers still groan to go there, to get that glorified body. I can almost imagine it. But Jesus Christ, who was in heaven, gives up all of that, and he comes down here 
Genesis 28, 12 tells us this, when Jacob has his dream, then he dreamed, Jacob did, and behold, the ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, consider this, the Lord stood above it. The New Testament commentary on that is the gospel of John. And Jesus says, I am that ladder. My point is he gives all of that up to come down here to die on the cross for humanity. And now he's longing to have all of that glory back after they spit on him, after they pluck out his beard, after they beat him with the cat of nine tails, after they hang him up on a cross, all of those things. And he's being obedient to the father to the end. He says in verse six, I have manifested your name, your nature, your character to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. What he's saying is they have received the revelation of God that I have given them. Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. They believed in their salvation. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is listing all of these things. It's not like he's informing the Father what, what has happened, but Jesus is kind of boasting in what he's did. Look, these are yours, Father. You gave them to me. I've taught them. Everything I've taught them, they understand, they know. It's kind of like when Paul, went to the Jerusalem council and he didn't know how they were going to behave because he's bringing in these Gentiles and he gets there and he begins to boast on the work of the Lord of all of these Gentiles that Jesus had blessed them with. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing. All of these 11 you've given me and they believed in me and father, they love you and they're going to be, and they're connected to you also. And then he begins to pray some things about these 11 because he's about to depart here. And he says, I've got some things, Father, I want you to do for him because I'm going away. And they're scared, but Father, I know you're going to take care of them. And he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That means if he's glorified in them, he's glorified in us. Wow. That's a high and lofty calling that the Lord would be glorified in us. That means we need to tighten up or gird up the loins of our minds and walk because he's cheering. Not only is he cheering us on, but he's saying, you guys need to look, act, behave just like me because you have my name. You're carrying my honor. You're carrying my glory. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep. You need to circle that word keep. 
Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus will pray for two things specifically for these 11. The first thing he prays is that the Father would keep them. He says, Father, I have kept them. I have kept them for three and a half years. I'm, I'm on my way home. And now I pray that you will keep them in the same way that I've kept them. Only now keep them from your throne room. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. I couldn't catch him. I couldn't catch him. Is that what happened to Judas? Huh, no. It was fulfilled that Judas would betray him. And Jesus is warning the disciples to know that this plan is working perfectly. There's not an oops with the Godhead. If you're in the hands of Jesus Christ, you're safe and secure. And he's warning his disciples to know that because you better believe they're still saying, what's going on with Judas? He was right here with us. Can that happen to me? Jesus, the scriptures has already told us, knowing everything. He's saying that for these guys. None of these guys are going to slip out of my hands. If that's where you want to stay, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to stay there. But Judas was never a part of me. So he's instilling confidence in them also. He says, none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's not going against his word. Verse 13, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he prays for their security. God is not only a saving God, and I thank him for that, but God is also a keeping God. The same God who saved you is the same God who will keep you. You don't have to worry about him losing you, getting upset with you, that he would allow you to go your own way. My God, the God of the scripture, is a keeping God. He knows what we face every day down here, whether it's trials and tribulations, whether it's persecution, whether it's temptation, he knows our frame. But he's a keeping God, and he's warning his disciples to understand in the midst of persecution, in the midst of what is about to happen, that all of you guys will scatter from me. The Father will keep you. That's good to know because I'm not going to say it. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's speaking once again of the persecution of the world. So he's asking the Father to keep them in the midst of this. Remember, they're in the upper room. And even when Jesus gives that sop of bread to Judas Iscariot, 
Remember, every one of those disciples said, Lord, is it I? If not for the grace of God, so go you. So go me. I can never get so spiritually minded and so haughty that I've got all these things figured out. There's no temptation that comes my way that I can handle. No, no. I must stay connected to the true vine and abide in him. And that's what Jesus is wanting them to understand. God is a keeping God. And we're safe in his arms. Once again, he's the one who said a bruised reed or a smoking flax. He's still keeping. So he says in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. I wish he would have prayed that. As soon as we were saved, we're out of here. I'd like that, but that's not what he wants. But that you should keep them from the evil one. Notice it says that you, Father, should keep them from the evil one. Notice he doesn't say keep the evil one from them. Those are two different things. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us this, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom, seeking whom he may devour. But Jesus says, Father, keep them from being allured, being entangled, being entrapped by Satan devices and all of his schemes. That's the issue. What goes in the eye gate and goes into the ear gate and comes out the mouth gate. Those are the issue. God the Father is going to do his part, but we have a part to do also. Make sure we're abiding in the true vine. In verse 16, he tells us, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then in chapters 17, 18, and 19, he prays for their sanctification. So first he says, keep them. And then, Father, not only to keep them, make sure they stay sanctified. Make sure we stay sanctified. Make sure, Pastor Victor, you stay sanctified. He says, sanctify them by your truth. How did we do that? He says, your word is truth. He has two concerns for his disciples, that they would be kept, but also that they would be holy. I love that word, sanctified. Set apart for God's purposes, for his services. And so his prayer to the Father is to keep us sanctified, to keep us holy in this world. And notice that when he speaks of sanctification, he says it only comes by one way. He doesn't give us a different way. He says, if you want to stay sanctified, stay in the word. I know no one who lives a holy life and not in the word of God. I remember talking to Pastor Jack. I guess he's 80-something, maybe 90-something years old now. I read the Bible three times through this year. I'm not going to make it four times. Every time I talk to Pastor Jack, and I I love talking to him, but when he got down to how many times he read the Bible, I'm saying it kind of convicted me. And so one day I asked him, I said, Pastor Jack, 
So I was thinking about Pastor Nitcher, and I said, Pastor Jack, when you were a pastor, did you, read, did you still read the Bible three times through? And he laughed. He said, no, because <laughs> I have a problem doing that. I'm in the text, and I'm studying for this, and I'm trying to get ahead for something else. And I said, Lord, I miss, and I get my time with him, but I just miss Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. My point is, the key to a sanctified walk is in the Word and in prayer. You can't get it any other way. You can't get it and put it in low gear or neutral or just drive and say, I've got it now. The true vine will tell on you. You'll find yourself not being connected as good as you should be. But if you're in your word and if you're in your word and you say that is the chief aim, and I know we all have to work and do things. Last time I checked, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I think there's 23 hours in a day, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's 24. We make time for anything we want to do. Make time for the word of God. You will see your walk just take off if you make time for his word. You'll see your life become proportionate to his walk. And even when things come your way that you don't like, because you are grafted into the word and that you're allowing that word to cleanse you and wash you and give you insight. Man, it's amazing. I'm going to always harp on that because those are the important things, you guys. Being in your word. That's what Jesus is saying. Keep them. I want you to keep them. He's going to do that. I want you to keep them sanctified Being in your word, he's going to do that. The worship team can come up. And then he says this in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I've given them your purpose. And now they're going to take your purpose, which is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, out into this lost and dying world. We have a great commission, and we should be doing that. We should be telling a lost and dying world about Jesus Christ because this world needs it. How in the world can a man be in his little store, and a guy comes in and begins to steal, and the guy defends himself, the store owner, and stab him, and I think in the end he, he died, and they charged the, the store owner for murder. <laughs> we need to pray. We need to be understanding the world that we live in. We all have trials, but I guarantee you, even in the bad days, if we don't run away, if we say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing But I know you love my children more than I do. 
and I trust you. Because that's what it boils down to, trust. Two wings of a dove, trust and obey. That's what it takes to live in this world. We must surrender what we see to the word of God and allow him to have his way. He does all things well, but we must continue to stay connected to the true vine. We're going to look at next week that he's going to speak about us. He already knew we were going to be believers, and Jesus prays for us. He loves us, and the Father loves us. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that we can come and speak to you about our cares, our concerns, our joy, and our pains. Father, I pray that you would do great things here at Calvary Restore. I pray that I will get to see children love the Lord and give their lives to Jesus Christ, family members surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ. Father, that's not impossible for you. What you want us from us is to yield to the Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I don't know if I can continue to walk with you. It's tough not seeing any kind of changes in my son or daughter life. Lord, so give me grace to honor you because I know in the end, my life will bring glory to you if I trust you and lean not to my own understanding knowing that you are good and that you do all things well. So, Father, I pray for protection here at CR. I pray for every family and every family unit, Father. I pray for the husbands especially to be the men of their families, to be in the word with their families and in prayer. And I pray for single moms. As Jesus says, you're not alone because I, the Father is with you. So strengthen yourselves and know that God is good. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way in us, that we would die to self and allow you to be who you want to be in our lives and we'll be sure to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.